All right, we're in a series on what? Revival. Anybody remember what we covered last week? The big idea? The reason people didn't come back, right? No pain, no gain. Sometimes there's setback before there's advance. There's attrition before there is victory. That is a pattern in the Christian life holistically and then specifically in revival. Now, what does the word revive mean? To live again. Now, it's metaphorical because if you're a Christian, you never become unalive in Christ, but you can be all but dead. Anybody ever been next to a patient on life support? They're pretty much, I mean, they're almost flatlined. They got tubes coming in and out of them. They are comatose. They are out of it. But revival is when we get out of our spiritual comas, rip out those tubes and life support machines and get back after walking after God. Now we have a shovel up here to symbolize what? Yeah, we need to dig and get back to certain truths, right? We're going to be talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in revival in coming weeks, but we need to dig, dig out the rubbish that the Philistines have put in the hole of our thinking and our doctrine and our lives and our practice. So we've looked at a few hard things, right? We've looked at getting back to the wrath of God. That's a real coffee cup of a verse, isn't it? Christian calendar kind of a verse. We talked about foundationally getting back to the book. We've talked about obedience, and last week, pain comes before gain. Well, this week, we're going to get to one thing that I think is the most foundational along with getting back to the book. But let me, let me, let me dive in to the big idea by way of this. The average person is not all that impressed with God's love. Would you agree? The average person is hardly amazed at the idea of God's love. You, you might say to them, hey, you know, God loves you. They may read a bumper sticker that says, smile, God loves you. And the response either outwardly or inwardly is, duh, isn't that sort of God's job description? And besides, I'm a pretty lovable guy or gal anyway. Let's keep it moving. Tell me something I don't know. The average person is not stunned by God's love. But sadly, I would say the average Christian is likewise not so stunned or amazed by God's love. And I'm talking about Christians, people who have not just been the recipient of God's common love. Does he not make the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? Rather, we're talking about people who have been the recipients of God's special elective salvific love that brought them out of darkness unto light and from the power of Satan to God himself. The average Christian, quite frankly, is not astonished, not startled, not filled with wonder. All definitions for being amazed. So let me have you try something on that I tried on this week. I was just thinking about this. When is the last time you were stunned, gripped, stopped in your tracks by this thought, God loves me? When is the last time that happened for you? When was the last time you were stirred in your heart thinking, God loves me? 
And if you're like me, you would probably have to confess that often we are not so amazed at God's love. But if we would see revival in this church that would pour out into our families and into this community, I maintain to you, we have to get re-amazed at God's love. J.I. Packer, in his book called Knowing God, a great introductory book for Christians, great book about discipleship, he said this, A right-minded concern for revival will, will express itself not in a hankering after tongues, that may or may not happen, but rather in a longing that the Spirit may shed God's love abroad in our hearts with greater power. He's quoting from Romans 5.5. 5. For it is with this that personal revival begins and that by this revival in the church once begun is sustained. So here's really the big idea today. Being re-amazed by God's love. Anybody here say, man, I am so staggered by God's love right now. It's just transforming how I do life. Anybody here say that? I would not say that. So I'm asking the Spirit of God as I preach this message to myself, feel a fresh apprehension of God's love for me bubble up. Is that your prayer too? God, do it. Do it. Do it. Now, we're going to turn to 1 John, the second scripture Pastor Cleet just read from. This is a book that puts on blast the real deal love of God. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, book that has the, the phrase that's often quoted in reference to God. God is love. Twice, God is love. But in particular, we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, one simple, one weighty, one plain, one profound verse today. And this verse has the capacity to reignite in your heart a fresh sense of amazement over God's love. It also has the capacity, if you've never tasted and seen that the Lord's good, if you've never come to Christ, this verse has the, the capacity to do something eternal in your heart. Now, this is how he begins. Did you guys hear me say, a ten hut? To get your attention a few minutes ago, it didn't really work. I can say it a lot louder, but we have the speakers on. Before we dive into the body of this message, I just want to say, still by way of introduction, John is using some highly charged language to get the attention of the reader. He starts off with two, two powerful attention-grabbing expressions aimed at hitting not just our head, but our heart with the love of God. What's the first word in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1? See. Sometimes that word is translated behold, as it is in John chapter 1 verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or John 19 verse 5, Jesus is all beaten and brutalized standing before Pontius, I think it's Pilate, and he says, echo homo, behold the man. Do you remember that? He's trying to get the crowd's attention. It's the same word used in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Same word in Revelation 20, behold, I am coming quickly. If you've been in the military and you're in a squad bay, like a, a barracks, 
and a senior officer steps on deck, the first person who sees that officer, Joe, you're learning all about this, yells what? Attention! Why? They're trying to get your attention. God is trying to get our attention about this matter of his love for us. Now, John then stacks on another intensifying, attention-grabbing expression. He does not say, see the love. He says, see what kind of love. Do you see the difference? He doesn't just say, see the love. He says, see what kind of love. The old translation has, has it this way. See what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Now, again, strong expression. Do you remember when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee on a little fishing trip with the, with the apostles? And bam, like a, a class four hurricane hits the scene. It's bad. Waves are engulfing the deck, rain torrentially pouring down, wind ripping and stretching at the rigging. The apostles think they're going to die. They say as much. Jesus, he's good. He's taking a nap. They wake him up and they say, Master, we perish. And then with one word in the Greek, which would be roughly translated, be muzzled, this storm-stricken Sea of Galilee becomes a placid Sea of Glass. Can you just imagine that? You're in a storm like that, clouds gone, sun coming through, stormy seas like a mirror. And you know what they say? What manner or what kind of man is this that he makes even the winds and the storms to obey him? In other words, it's a strong expression. Jesus Christ is not just some junior varsity God. He is very God of very gods. And John now is calling our attention not just to God's love, but to the amazing depth of God's love for us that has made it possible for you and I to become children of God. So I just don't want us to be ho-hum on this. Do you know what's interesting? Do you know when John wrote 1 John under the Holy Spirit? About between 85 and 95 A.D. You say, what's so significant about that, historian? This. John walked with Jesus in Jesus' days of flesh on earth some 50 years earlier. Mark it, half a century. And the point that I'm trying to make is apparently 50 years was not enough for him to lose his love for the Lord. He never got over his deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether you've been a Christian five minutes or five years or 50 years, nor should we, right? And we're going to see three compelling reasons in this text why we should be either amazed for the first time or re-amazed by God's love, okay? Three simple reasons. Three simple reasons. Number one. God's love is amazing when you consider its object sinners like you and me. Now, we all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? We all can say we know God loves. But, but as I just said a few minutes ago, in the, by way of introduction, um, we're like, Ugh. yeah, yawn. Tell me something I don't know, Right? In contrast to that mentality, John has a tone of amazement. 
He does not have an entitlement mentality when it comes to the love of God, does he? Not at all. I mean, we can't hear him read it, of course. I wish we could, you know, pull down the podcast. But I imagine if he were standing here quoting that verse himself, he would say something like this. Behold, oh, that's the old version I memorized. See what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Do you get the sense there? I think he's amazed that sinners like him and you and I would be the object of his love. That's the first reason it's amazing. Now, the reason we do not find that so amazing is because we do not see the colossal gap between our inherent sinfulness and God's impeccable holiness. Isn't that right? When we talk about sin... Even if we use that word, often what we really mean is an excusable mistake, right? An innocent slip-up. I mean, I'm just human. Yeah, fallen human. So we bring up us as we drag God down. We often don't think of God as the Holy One of Israel who inhabits eternity, the one who says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, the one before whom fallen angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And then Isaiah says, Depart, or Isaiah says I'm a man of unclean lips. No, no, we, we think of God not as in heaven on his throne, rather as like a benevolent old kind of semi-senile grandfather who's just really nice. And everyone around him saying, nice, nice, nice. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. On top of that, we have reduced our thinking about sin to almost strictly as a sickness, Right? Like, it's just, it's just kind of a, a sickness. And, and we've made God as a therapeutic model, God almost into just a, um, a third-party uh, doctor who comes in, and he, and he makes us feel better, and he cleans us up so that we can feel better about ourselves. Now, of course, the Bible does use the motif of sickness as talking about sin. Isaiah says, from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet, nothing but wounds and putre putrefying sores. But... Sin is also described in other ways in the Bible. Sin is described also as rebellion, which makes us rebels, and the Bible actually calls us in ourselves enemies of God, Romans chapter 5. Now, can you be honest? Have you ever sinned willingly? Anybody here? Knowingly? And... Heaven forbid, repetitively, have you ever done that? Well, the reality is we all have, and we've done so with our hand against the holy maker, right? We've all clenched our jaw in defiance against the almighty. We've all crossed our arms in defiance against Yahweh. We've all balled up our fist in rebellion against our maker. We all have. We all have. So, given that, would you not agree that God would have every right to pour out on us the judgment we deserve for a willful, stiff-lipped, stubborn defying of his love, 
of his law. Oh, I'm going to throw this to my coach. Come on, baby. Hey, come on, man. Come on. Come on, man. You got to give the Detroit tribe a good look. You going to put me on the mound next time? Do you see that? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, my throws to second base go like that sometime too. We, we deserve that, right? We have willfully defied God's love, law, and his lordship. Now, you may, you may not be a Christian. You might, this might be totally foreign stuff to you. Or maybe even as a Christian, you, you, you wrestle with the idea that God should pour out judgment. So l- let me try and put this, some shoe leather on this. I want you to think of right now someone who has done you or someone you love wrong. Anybody have anybody like that in their life? Somebody who's done you wrong or done someone you love dearly wrong. They've spoken slanderously about you. They've spread lies about you. They've mistreated you behind your back. They might have even done violence to you, some level of violence to you or your loved one. Now, I want to ask you this question. What do you want to do to them? Or let's just back off one notch. We're Christians. What do you want to see happen to them? And I don't want you to give me the Christian answer. I want you to just be honest from your gut, I see, right? Can you all feel the weight of that question? I mean, when you see that person, when you see that person, it's everything you can do to keep your mouth shut. When you see that person, it's, it's a victory just to paste on a semi-half plastic smile, right? And your, your head is just pounded with all kinds of negative thoughts about them. Can anybody identify with that? Now, you have been legitimately done wrong and hurtful or someone you love. That makes it even worse sometimes, doesn't it? Now, does not God have a right to feel that way? Given the fact there's a market difference between us and him in this illustration, he's never done anybody any wrong. I can't understand everything he does, but he's good, right, and perfect in all that he does. He's never done anything wrong. I mean, think about this. How we experience so much good from him. I mean, daily, right? The fact that you got clothes on your back, the fact that you might go to a grill, the fact that you have people who love you, the fact that you are breathing air, the fact that you're standing uh, six feet above the earth, or some of you a little bit less, how often we don't even give a meager ounce of gratitude for all the good things that come to us, right, in life, from, from the hand of God. And yet the minute something goes south in our life, the minute something sours, man, piling out of our mouth, not just ounces and not just gallons, but billions of gallons of complaining against the Lord. Huh? Isn't that true? God, to put it mildly, has every reason and right to pour out on us the judgment we deserve. But what's amazing, number one, about God's love for us is that he actually loves us sinners. Now, second of all, we're going to see what he did with the judgment we deserve. God's love is amazing. Second of all, when you consider its cost, the cross. Now, when you think of the cross, 
you typically, first of all, think of the physical pain of Jesus, right? He was beaten with a cat of nine tails. It's a wood stock about 18 inches long, pretty well-built dude would be holding that. Nine straps of leather on it, bone, shards of iron. They would tie the victim over low posts so the back would be taut. And like he is a batter stepping into a batter's box, he would just lay into him and lay into him and lay into him. And that would grab his flesh. And then when he ripped it back, the flesh would be separated from his body, revealing his insides. Isaiah says... He would be more marred that you wouldn't even be able to tell if he was a human. He was beaten so bad from a distance. And it was so brutal that according to Jewish law, you couldn't do that to somebody who had already passed out because of the pain, which is what would happen. So they'd have a bucket of salt water right there so you could splash it on the victim. And that way they would reawaken. And once again, you could resume the cat of nine tails instrument of incredible pain beating. Jesus went through that. And then you think about the cross. The cross was not like going to the hangman's noose or the firing squad or lethal injection needle because all of that makes death happen pretty quickly, relatively speaking. No, no, no. Crucifixion was a kind of death designed to maximize the pain by extending your life as far as it could go. Jesus went through that. But I don't even think that compares in any way, shape, or form to the emotional pain that Jesus experienced. I I can't fathom that billions of sins of millions of people would be placed on him on that cross, right? Do you know what it is to carry around the guilt of one of your sins? Can you imagine carrying around the guilt of a world of sins? That's what... God's love is amazing when you consider its cost, the cross. But what I just shared with you was from the perspective of the Son. But I think, actually, this text is pointing us to the perspective of the Father. We usually don't think about the Father when it comes to the cross, because it wasn't the Father on the cross, it was the Son on the cross. But the text points us to the Father. See, we can understand how Jesus went to the cross by, if you know the Bible storyline, the envy of the Pharisees, right? And we can see how Jesus went to the cross by the hate of the Sadducees and the craft of Caiaphas and the treachery of that betrayer of a friend, Judas, and the spineless self-interest of Pilate who could have nonetheless freed him. We can understand that. But you look deeper into the mystery of the cross, you will find, according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, the Father himself delivered up the Son to the cross. It says in Acts 2 and 23, he was delivered by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's a related word to the word right here in the text, given. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Same word, family. Pastor Cleet read it as lavish. That's one translation. Now stay with me. In order for the Father to lavish on us the kind of love that would make us children of God, the Father had to lavish something else on his son. What did he have to lavish on his son? The judgment that we deserved. In order for us to be bestowed with love, He had to bestow the wrath we deserve on his son. Now listen to this quote by this old head, A.W. Pink. Not all the thunderbolts of divine judgment let loose in Old Testament times 
Not all the vials of wrath which will be yet poured out on an apostate Christendom during the unparalleled horrors of the great tribulation. Not all the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth of the damned in the lake of fire ever gave or ever will give such a demonstration of God's inflexible justice, unspeakable holiness, and infinite hatred of sin as did the wrath of God which flamed against his own son on the cross. I, I, I cannot fathom what it was like for the eternal father to pour out on his eternal son, whom he loved from eternity past, the eternal wrath that you and I deserve. The very son that he said, not just at his baptism, but as, at his transfiguration, what did he say about him? This is my beloved son. Don't sterilize the Godhead. There's real love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is my beloved Son whom I'm well pleased. At the cost of the cross, the Father lavished on his Son the judgment you and I deserve so we could receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness we do not. God's love is second of all amazing, not just because of its object, sinners like you and I, but the cost of the cross from the Son and the Father's perspective. Now, third of all, God's love is amazing when you consider its result, divine birthright, that we should be called children of God. There is so much packed in that tight expression, called children of God. I mean, there's the idea of position, position. All of my children, all of my children are Hanafis, right? That's the position. Well, all of God's children are no longer children of wrath, which is what the person outside of Christ is. The world won't tell you that. Ephesians 2 says you're children of wrath until you meet Christ. But after that, you become a child of God. But it's not just legal position, it's loving affection. Bound into this expression is the term, of, is the feelings of endearment, of love, of, of favor, of, of, of protection. And whether or not you came from a healthy family, whether or not you had a good father or bad father or, or no father at all, as many often don't have in their lives, if you're in Christ, you have a heavenly father who is absolutely crazy about you. He is. Oh, you're a sinner. You need to be washed in the blood. But whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And whom the Father sets his affection upon is his child indeed. This is really awesome truth. I mean, I'll be, I'll, listen, I'm looking at some beautiful kids right here, the Ashmore kids. I love them. And, well, some of you who are adults, I don't, no, you're not kids. You're just a lot younger than me. I love you as my kids is what I'm trying to say, Okay. But I don't love any kids like I love my kids. Had a late night baseball game Tuesday. I think I'd woke up about four or five. I was just exhausted. Uh, actually, had, I think I had maybe two games. No, that was one game night. But it was a late game. Didn't finish until midnight. Uh, I had Ian there, Titus, and it was Claire. Emma, Emma didn't want to come to my game. No, she was hanging out with mom. And I was so tired, I, I just thought, okay, Ian, you can drive. Claire can sit in front, and I'm going to fall asleep. Titus fell asleep. I mean, like that. He's just slobbering all over the place. I'm trying to fall asleep, but they're messing with me every time I'm about to fall asleep, those dingbats, which is a word my dad often used of affection. 
But in those moments when they weren't messing with me before I was drifting off to sleep, I just looked at Titus over there, drool coming out, halfway slumped over, Ian right there, and Claire right there, and I thought, I really love these kids. These are my kids. I'm so glad that I get to be their father. And I'm just telling you, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what the Father says about us. He loves us with Jeremiah 31.3, with an everlasting love. So there's two views about this matter. One view is, of course he does. That's his job description. Hopefully we've already dispensed of that foolish mentality. And second of all, man, this is amazing. Given who I am in myself and given the cost it took, this is doggone bananas that I'm a child of God. So are you amazed by God's love? I realize the thrust of this message is regaining an amazement over God's love, but there are some people, and we probably all battle this at times, who think there's no way God could love me. Have you ever been that way? I felt that more as a believer than a non-believer because I didn't have a biblical view of God before I became a believer. But as a believer, sometimes I just really shank it. I mess up. And I'm thinking, there's no way God could really love me the way, uh, the way the Bible says, right? And that's just a lie. That's just a lie. You cannot out the Father's love. And by the way, one of the proofs that you've really experienced a saving love is you don't use grace as a license to sin. You're actually quite convicted about it, right? Charles Hans Spurgeon, his birthday was actually yesterday, lived over 150 years ago. He was a preacher in London, and he would sometimes get afflicted with depression, and, and, and maybe he, he, would, he would sometimes have a sense that there's no way God could ever love him. And one, one week he's getting ready to go to preach, and like the Saturday before that Sunday, he tells one of his associates, I, I, can't, I can't preach. And he goes out to his uh, home, hometown out in the country of England. And he is just battling, and he's thinking, no way God could love me. But he somehow pulls himself out of bed and gets to church, which is, by the way, what you need to do, whether you feel it or not, because he wasn't feeling it. And he went into the small little church, handful of people, and the guy preached a sermon that reminded him of the love of God. And at the end of the sermon, he ran up to him and he threw his arms around him, around him and he said, I'm, thank you for your sermon this morning. It's convinced me I am a child of God. I am saved by grace and all my sins are forgiven. And the funny thing is, the guy actually read a sermon that he had preached. Because they would print Spur Spurgeon's sermons in the newspaper. He didn't even care. He needed to be reminded of this truth. You know, what's funny is this message I just preached to you, it was the second sermon I ever preached. This is back in 19, yes, 19s. Uh, 97. I became a Christian in 96. And I remember I was at a church and they asked me, to, they were doing a banquet and they asked me to preach and it scared the daylights out of me. Like, uh, I don't know. But the Lord gave me basically this verse. And I bring it up because sometimes since in these, in these years in between, sometimes I'm on the mountaintop with God and sometimes I'm in the valley. Sometimes I have an incredible sense of his love for me. And other time, I'm like, ho-hum. I'm just being honest with you, right? 
And I would suspect that would be the case for every believer here, right? Sometimes, man, you, you know, God's love is just staggering you, and sometimes you're like, sigh. Now, here's the thing. You and I are responsible for this thing. Christianity is not a religion in the worst sense. Now, the Bible does talk about pure religion undefiled. There's a good sense of religion. But in the negative sense of religion, Christianity is not. Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship, is it not? Who here has some relationship in their life? That's everybody. You got brother-sister relationship. You got father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, mother-daughter, friend-friend. In every one of those relationships, how do you grow that relationship? It's just, right, you spend time. And sometimes people say, I, I am not, I don't think God's love so amazing, or I don't sense it right now. And you, and you, and you actually get in their lives like, well, how much time are you actually using to develop that relationship? If you want to get wet, what do you got to do? You got to get in the water. You got to jump in a pool. You got to go to the lake. You got to get in the shower. You got to draw a bath. You got to, if you want to get wet, you got to get in the water. Duh. If you want to be amazed by God's love, you got to be around those places where he loves to pour out a sense of his love. So one of the places is the word of God. That's what I, I think we just washed in the water of the word. Simple verse, right? Three truths. God's love is amazing because of his object sinners, cost the cross, and result divine birthright. We just washed in the word. How are you going to grow that relationship? Because God speaks to us not through televangelists and not through everyone talking about all their little prophetic dreams. God can do that. But he, pre, he speaks to us most of all through the word of God. Of course you're not going to be amazed by the love of God. And you're not going to experience personal revival. You're not getting to the word. Of course not. That'd be like being in a relationship with somebody and you never let them talk. How would that go? And then there's prayer, us talking to God. Are you praying? Again, not to check the box to impress somebody. Do you actually commune with God? In fact, do you ask, and we'll get to this, do you ask for God to pour out a spirit into your life, into your heart? Because it says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is given to us. And then community. Do you know, there's this amazing capacity we have with one another to help each other taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, you can experience the love of God through other people in your lives. And you know, there's certain people you get around, don't you just feel the love of God more? What if we all endeavored, instead of majoring, and I'm preaching to myself, majoring in sarcasm, we majored in putting the Savior on blast, right? Of being that, that influence where people are like, I'm, man, I'm feeling the love of God from that person. And then, and then finally, and by the way, I cut out about a third of my sermon because it's grill time. I get it, Okay. But I'm just going to say this. There's something that happens in worship. That passage Cleet read, which I may preach on, 
For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. What is that but an act of worship, right? And then he goes on to say that you might experience the breadth, the height, the depth, and all the massive dimensions of God's love. That you might be full, filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, if you had a flow chart that worship, when you dive into it, leads to a greater sense of God's love and amazement. So when, 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 the, when the team comes up here to lead us in worship, that's not the sum and substance of worship. All of life is worship. But when we say that we mean musical worship, and, and the Bible has a lot to say about that, right? I mean, you got big books in Old Testament that talk about chapters and chapters about the singers that were appointed and the musicians. And, and they come in here early Sunday to prepare. Why? Because they know that they wield a very important responsibility. They're leading us in musical worship. But see, we're not at a concert. You're not just kind of putting your hands in your pocket. You can put your hands in your pocket and still worship, but you get the point. You're just not like, okay, okay, get this thing over. Uh, how did they do? They were off key. You're off key. <laughs> I'm off key. But I don't think the, the, the Chinese underground church huddling in some forest is worried about somebody's doggone off key, do you? They're just glad to worship the living God. That's why they have such an amazing sense of God's love. So what I want to encourage you to do is not check out, oh, bathroom time, oh, phone time, oh, this time, oh, talk to somebody else next to me time. I just want to ask you to think about how, how will you stand before the Lord the moment you go right into his presence? Ain't none of that going to matter, Hill of Beans, right? So let's worship in spirit and in truth. We prayed that this morning. And if you've never actually tasted God's love, in other words, you've never said, well, I'm a sinner, and I've, I've sinned against a holy God as a rebel, but yet he loved me, and he took the hit himself and his son on the cross, who did the Heisman on sin, death, hell, and Satan on the third day, and rose again, and offered salvation. And I want that salvation. If that's you, today would be a great day. Because being in church doesn't make you saved. It just makes you a sinner on a seat that we had reupholstered by Joe. And being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. My old line, haven't used it in probably a good six weeks. You can be, you can be baptized until every tadpole in the pond knows your name, date, rank, and social security number. That will not save you. Just come up a wet sinner. The only thing that can save you is turning to Jesus Christ who died in your behalf on the cross and rose again and confessing him as Lord and Savior and saying, I want to follow you. I trust in you. And if that's you, this would be a great time to do that. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your amazing love for us. I didn't even have a chance to, to trace how this causes revival to break out. But when we are astounded and amazed by your love, we confess sin. We bear with one another in a world that wants to divide us across all kinds of lines. We stop holding on with a vice-like grip to things of the world. We turn from false teaching. There's so much in 1 John that says being gripped by the love of God does. But, Lord, I just pray that we would be gripped by your love, that you would allow us. I pray for the person who, Lord, hasn't been experiencing your love and has been quite lackadaisical about that matter, that they would purpose to get wet 
they would put themselves in those places where the love of God flows. And not just like that. Sometimes you even withhold that sense for a season so that we'll long for it even more. But, but you do, you do, just as, um, Lord, I sat in that car coming back at 12.15 from downriver looking upon my kids with great love because, no, they're my kids. You look upon us that way. And as we sing, would you be pleased to give us a sense of that that we did not have when we walked in here. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.